Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Just before we get to this great episode, I want to extend a special offer to you as a Meet Me in the Kitchen listener. Little Kitchen Academy wants every child to experience what changing lives from scratch really means. So as a special gift to our listeners, you can currently save $25 off enrollment at any Little Kitchen Academy location. Just use the code in the kitchen at checkout and you'll instantly save $25 off enrollment at any LKA location. Again, the promo code to use is in the kitchen. It will only be available for a limited time, so be sure to enroll your child today. Even if it was just making a recipe, that would be great and we'd still do it. But it was really nice sort of cherry on top and has become more of the core of why I'm such a believer of the Little Kitchen Academy when I was able to really see that it is just so much more about life skills and teaching these kids how to regulate their emotions and how to celebrate their wins and, you know, create a sense again of self-mastery. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy and supported by Birkenstock, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. There's nothing quite like being seen for who or what you are. When someone sees beyond the surface and understands your intention, your why, without an explanation, It's such an invigorating feeling. Instantly, there's a connection and a gateway to speak on a deeper level based on that shared understanding. I'm not sure if that happens regularly for Dr. Deepika Chopra, but I have a suspicion it does. A clinical psychologist and expert in visual imagery and media, Dr. Chopra is extremely observant, knowledgeable, and intuitive. Known as the Optimism Doctor, she's been featured multiple times on the Today Show and in Forbes collaborated with major brands like Goop and Rock, hosted a podcast, and founded the company Things Are Looking Up. She's also a daughter, a sister, a wife, and a mother to two young boys, the first of whom is a student at Little Kitchen Academy, which is where Deepika discovered far more than cooking classes. Probably the most obvious question to ask is the one that I'm going to start with. What is an optimism doctor? Yeah, fair enough. Great question. So I love this question because in all honesty, it's something that I created or sort of was organically created with me for me. So it's a fair enough question because it did not exist before. And basically by trade, I have a doctorate in clinical health psychology, but I have been studying really specifically the science behind optimism for over a decade now. And actually the actual word or the title of optimism doctor, like so much else, I feel like in my career came really organically and unexpected through a session with a client. And so I know some of my strengths and I also know some of my weaknesses. And one of the things I'm not so good at is being concise. And we were doing sort of quote unquote therapy, which I didn't really call therapy when I was sort of creating my own, you know, intervention treatment, I would call it self-worth work. And I would explain to my client 
you know, this is like a decade ago and say, well, we're really going to focus on X, Y, and Z. And this is going to be different than traditional therapy. And I had a whole spiel and we're going to focus, you know, 80% of the time on the things that are going well and the kind of future that you want and all the reasons why this was, you know, different than maybe some of the therapy practices they would have done in the past. And we're going to take a look at your optimism factor and all these things. And it was like 15 minutes went by or 20 minutes. And he just looked at me and he said, so you're basically like my doctor of optimism. And I was like, huh. And he's like, I'm going to call you optimism doctor. And I was like, if I would have presented with that, could that have really limited all this 15, 20 minutes down to maybe like five? And he said, yeah. So it kind of stuck. People started to refer to me as the optimism doctor. And then after a little bit of time, I decided, hey, this is exactly what I'm doing. This is the best way to describe it, to title it. I'm going to trademark it. So it became my trademark and it became sort of the title in which I operate under. And I think it says it really well, but that's me, the optimism doctor now. (laughs) Well, very few of us, it's a very small circle of people in the world, I imagine, that have your specific credentials, but probably everybody listening to this podcast at some time or another has said to a friend, to a family member, you need to just be a little more optimistic. That certainly doesn't encompass what your work is. So what is your general approach to teaching people to be more optimistic? You know, it's really interesting. I think most people would think that I might answer that with helping people be more positive. But in reality, that is actually not what we do and also not really necessarily how I define or a lot of people in the field would define optimism. You know, I think that the immediate thing that they think of when they think of optimism is positivity or rose-colored glasses or a glass half full and then even surpassing that, some of the sort of misconceptions about optimism are you sort of think of a person that's devoid of reality and sort of, you know, is blissed out 24-7 and not really aware of, you know, some of the setbacks. But actually, how we really define optimism and, and someone that is optimistic is someone that is keenly aware, mindfully aware of the roadblocks and the setbacks that, might I add, all of us experience in our lives on an everyday level. But the caveat is they see those setbacks and roadblocks as something that they can overcome and that is temporary. And, you know, they know that they have the resiliency and the power to overcome the struggles, even if they don't know exactly how or when. And so optimism in the work that we do is really more so about honing in on someone's strengths and their resiliency, figuring out, you know, points of growth through struggle, and also just, you know, being really rooted in authentic emotions and being able to have the skills to sit in those emotions and ride through those emotions as waves rather than sweep them under the rug or pretend they don't exist. And so I think that's a huge part of optimism in the work that we do that is really overlooked and misunderstood a lot. Well, and as you just pointed out, it's easy to portray optimism verbally, that traditional optimistic approach, but that doesn't actually equate to having an optimistic mindset. So how do you, or perhaps how do we as everyday citizens differentiate between actual optimism and what I would term superficial optimism? So yeah, I really like to look at it as sort of optimism, because to me, that is authentic optimism is optimism versus sort of this idea of toxic positivity. And, you know, I think that, you know, the important factor of that, again, is being able to 
sit in and really be mindful of your true authentic feelings and to give power to that because, you know, we as humans, we were made to experience the full range of human emotion. And so not only are we going to experience them, we need to have a mindset where we're welcoming and sort of we accept and welcome and really give power and light to the full range of emotions instead of sort of having this mindset towards ourselves and others that we love from a good intention place where we are saying, hey, you're not allowed to feel these X, Y, and Z emotions that don't feel good. And so there's no space for them. And you can only feel good and only feel positive. Otherwise, all other emotions are not allowed here. And so I think that the hallmark really of that is you know, it seems counterintuitive and totally opposite, but part of optimism is recognizing that we do feel the full range of emotions. And not only do we feel them, it's okay to feel them. It's normal to feel them. We're supposed to feel them. And what we really ought to be doing is developing skills to go through them rather than pretend they don't exist. Well, and that's a really great way to tear down what you have referenced before as the good vibes only mantra that a lot of people put out there. And this is something that we see is pervasive on social media. I know this is probably not where we're going to go with the bulk of the conversation, but what's your general approach to social media? Because most of us present our best selves there, not our true selves. Absolutely. It's kind of like it's everyone's highlight reel, not the real reel. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of power in social media and the way that we're all connected. Of course, there's a lot of pros. It's helping people to feel more connected. It's helping people to be more creative and express themselves. It's giving people ideas and experiences and sort of opening doors in their professional and personal lives that may not have opened before. You know, that sharing of ideas is so important. But at the same time, you know, I think every single social media account should come with a caution of this is not real life. And even, you know, most of us that want to try and intentionally be more authentic on social media, it is still not real life. We don't see everybody's day to day. We don't see behind closed doors, even with the people that, again, are trying to promote a more authentic lifestyle, which is amazing. And I think we all should, but, you know, it's curated. There is an intention behind it. You have to actually curate a picture filter, edit, whatever it is, even choose what image or what experience or idea you want to put out there. So already that has an intention behind it. And then you create the caption and you create, you know, how you want it to be shared. And so just for all of us to know that it is something that is curated and it is not always real. And most of the time it's not. And so I think that we can understand that logically, but psychologically, it is something that is tough for all of us in experience. I remember when I was pregnant with Jag, my older son, you know, I'm in this space and this was now, you know, six years and some months, you know, ago. And it was the height of all social media. You know, everyone was on Instagram and there was a lot of people within my field or colleagues that were also pregnant at the same time. And I just had quite literally the worst pregnancy ever. I'm sure it could have been worse and and there is, you know, other people out there, but I certainly did not have the quintessential wearing a beautiful bohemian dress barefoot walking, you know, on the beach taking beautiful pictures and singing to my unborn child in my tummy. I had my head in a toilet all day. I threw up 36 times a day from start to finish. I had a lot of issues with the pregnancy and it was just a very dark time for me and what made it all that much more worse was seeing everybody else's portrayal 
of pregnancy and going through the experience and how magical it was. And it was sort of this, even me with having all the tools that I had, it made me feel shame. And it made me feel like there was something wrong with me. And I remember I was so ashamed to share my pregnancy because any picture would not do justice of what I was going through. And I felt like a fake. And so I hid it actually for quite a while, not from my friends, but just on social media because I didn't really know how to quite you know, put out what my actual experience was. And my cousin got married. And so pictures came out, you know, of me at the wedding and I was clearly pregnant. And I have to be honest, I was wearing a beautiful Indian, you know, outfit and it looked magical. You know, I was holding my bump and walking down the aisle, you know, welcoming him in, my cousin brother. And I got all these a flood of messages that were just like, congratulations, wow, you're glowing. You know, you look so beautiful. And immediately I just felt like something wasn't right. And the next day I had to post like what I was really going through. And I was so happy that I did because I had no idea that so many other people, hundreds and hundreds of people all over the world were experiencing similar or just an experience that wasn't what I was seeing. And they felt like they were alone and I felt I was alone. And so that was something that I felt was a positive in social media when I really was sharing how I really felt instead of just leaving a magical picture up there and saying, you know, we're pregnant. (laughs) Well, two aspects of what you just said are very interesting to me. I'll start with this one, the paradox perhaps of vulnerability, because most of us are unwilling to be vulnerable all the time, especially publicly. And yet it's a very admirable and compelling trait that we find in others. You have been very open. You've been very vulnerable in sharing that as the optimism doctor, you've struggled to be optimistic at times in your life. So how have you reconciled that personal challenge within your profession of helping others become more optimistic? Yeah. I mean, I think that very early on when I was doing the work and I got into this profession, you know, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to sort of go in a route that was more public or work with people on a more macro level. I was working one-on-one, but very early on when stuff, you know, started to go in that direction, I had to really reconcile with myself that the only way I could really do this work and put it out there is if I was authentic. I'm just that person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I never intended or wanted to be anyone's guru or sort of the poster person for optimism. I think that I have always been very transparent in, I know how to help others be more optimistic. I know what the science says. I really rely upon that. It's my expertise, but I'm also just like everybody else going through and trying to work on my own optimism. And I think that it's, you know, the only way I can do the work is to share when the tools are easy to use and when the tools are really hard to use. And I have been very humbled in my life, especially since becoming a mother with various things that I have been at extreme lows. And I have shared that, you know, even with that pregnancy, it took me almost seven whole months to even find a shred of hope or optimism. That's what something like a chronic illness or something over and over of your physical body not feeling well can really do to someone. And so I think part of the reason why for me reconciling that is I never intended to be the poster of it. I'm not the most optimistic person. In fact, even within my own family growing up, I was never the one that was the most optimistic. I think I have always been someone that helps others sort of sort things out. And that was a natural part of me since I was a child. But I also was always someone that transparently was doing work on myself. 
And so I think that was just it. It was never what I intended to be or do. I always tell people, you are your own guru, and I'm just here to help you develop your toolbox and your skills to reach that level of empowerment. But like, I am not the guru. Sounds to me like there's a parallel that we see at high-level professional sports where often the best coaches were never the best players and didn't even make it to the best level, but they are able to guide others and bring out the best in them. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I love that, especially because I'm right in the middle of watching winning time right now. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is. That is really interesting. I've never heard it put that way, but I do think that's a really good comparison. Well, yes, you've worked with some high-level athletes. You've worked with celebrities, actors, musicians, people that are well-known to the general public. In your experience, how similar are the challenges around optimism with what we would term the rich and famous compared to people in the general population? Speaking of athletes, I've always been very interested in athletes because when I was doing my dissertation on this idea of optimism, what was big for me was sensory-based visual imagery. And in the psych world at that time, which was quite a bit ago now, there wasn't a lot of research done, but the very little research that was done on visual imagery and future-directed thinking was done in sports psychology. And so I've always been very, very intrigued and entrenched in sort of the athlete world. And so that's always been interesting. I will say that, you know, optimism and sort of the highly privileged, there are studies that show, of course, there is, you know, some bias with optimism, with, you know, people that have experienced a more privileged life or lifestyle. And the research really shows that that privilege has to start from the beginning of young childhood and actually be sustained all throughout. There is like a little bit more of a sort of bias towards optimism because maybe there's less struggle. But having said that, you know, they have also looked at people that started with privilege and then sort of lost some of that and then worked harder and had experienced privilege again or not experienced and all of that. I, I think that what's true about optimism is there is that caveat there. And that's true for a lot of things, higher socioeconomic status and sustaining that for a long period of time. We do see people more gravitate towards sort of less worry in that realm of optimism. But what we don't see is people that gravitate towards more sort of celebration of things that go well. That is across the board hard for everybody and a skill that we all can learn. And the thing about optimism that I think is really cool is every single person can increase their optimism. And it is a learned behavior. I like to look at it like a muscle. So from wherever you're starting in your life and you know whether you are, like you said, someone that is quote unquote rich and famous or whether you're not, you can raise your optimistic factor and your optimism from wherever you're at. And we all probably need to, because I think across the board, from an evolutionary standpoint, we were sort of programmed to be more pessimistic. You know, our ancestors, no matter where we come from today, our ancestors way back when, you know, were running away from saber-toothed tigers. And if they imagined the worst case scenario chronically, they were the ones that probably survived. And from that survival, they passed on this gene of chronic sort of worst case scenario programming and visualizing. And what we know about today's day and world is that we still have predators and we can argue back and forth about who those predators are. But what we do know is the type of modern world that we live in, we don't thrive by chronically imagining the worst case scenario. In fact, it's sort of 
in a different direction. And so it's something that we all can learn and work out that muscle and that there's tons of evidence to show why having a more optimistic mindset is you know, not only beneficial for you emotionally, and there's a host of studies on that, but actually physically as well. I want to go back to when you were having those physical difficulties with your pregnancy, and then the last half decade of your life as well, in which you've become a mother. You referenced that earlier. How has becoming a mother changed your outlook on optimism? To be honest, it has increased my anxiety by a lot. I always felt like I was someone that was on the verge. I feel like all anxiety or depression are are normal emotions we have just taken to another degree. So we all can relate to people that, you know, have experienced anxiety or depression. It just matters, you know, when it becomes pervasive in our lives. And so I feel like I always gravitated towards like I was just like anxiety was bubbling and it was like something could set me off. I knew it was in there, but it was sort of at bay. And then I became a mom. And so I think that I, you know, have definitely experienced more anxiety and worry since becoming a mother. You know, even in little ways, I remember it's such a silly example, but when I first had my son Jag, you know, that first New Year's, I remember my husband saying, oh, we should go to this New Year's party at our friend's house in Malibu, which is, you know, there's one way sort of in and one way out. And it was kind of irrational, but maybe not. The first thing I thought of was New Year's Eve drunk drivers. I am not going anywhere where there's one way in and one way out just in case, cause I have a son now. And he was like, looked at me like I was absolutely nuts, but I didn't go. Or even planes, for example. Now I never used to be anxious on planes. And now like the slightest bit of turbulence, especially if I'm traveling alone for work, I'm like much more hypervigilant and something just about having children and being responsible for them and having that type of love. I think having your heart expanded in that way, a lot of times has increased actually my idea of optimism and hope in the world on a greater scale. But in my personal like micro level, it has tenfold increased my anxiety and made some of the tools much harder to access and made my work. I have more work cut out for myself, let's say. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure there's a lot of people who feel the same way and can relate to what you just shared. I was going to say another thing about having kids within my work of optimism that I think has really changed is I am much more focused in teaching youth optimistic skills now, like in a way that I never, I mean, I knew it was important, but ever since having children and the age that they are, so I have a six-year-old and a two and a half-year-old. I am like very much more focused in my career on working with that age group, preschool to elementary, teaching the optimism skills like much younger, because I think it's so important in that foundation. And for some reason, we don't do any of that. You know, we have classes, we have school, we have all kinds of things. And that's actually something that I love about Little Kitchen Academy, which I know we'll probably get into at, you know, face value, it can seem like just a cooking class, which is great and which is fun and honestly is what drew me into putting my child into it because I knew he would be interested. But very quickly, and maybe it's just from my background, I see things underneath and I was realizing it's so much more a life skill class and an emotional skill class than it is just following a recipe and making something and wearing a chef's coat. You're absolutely right. And many of the parents that we've had on this show or people affiliated with Little Kitchen Academy have a similar tale to tell. So what was it about Little Kitchen Academy that you recognized that took it from that superficial, it's a cooking class to exactly what you just described? 
I think the first thing really, you know, smack dab in the center of it for me was the amount of autonomy and independence and responsibility that the kitchen gives to really young kids starting at three. And they may not get that sort of sense of mastery or skill or responsibility anywhere else. I wasn't allowing my son to use, you know, kitchen tools in our kitchen because mainly I didn't feel equipped to be responsible for that. And so I think also, you know, just the idea of putting on a chef's coat and like doing the buttons and just feeling this sense of I am a chef here. And not only am I doing this, I'm not just like watching from the sidelines and sort of helping gather things. I'm gathering all my own ingredients. I'm measuring them out. I have my own cooktop. I have to be responsible for my body and the body of others because I'm using tools that, you know, adults use. Of course, they're safe there and they're special tools. But, you know, I think this just, I'm very big about the idea of teaching humans in general self-mastery. And I didn't really think of it at such a young age. And I am so blown away. I kind of look at it more so about that and the cooking part is secondary. Whereas when I first started, I was looking at it like, oh, this will be a fun cooking class. And I think my kid's really into the idea of cooking something or putting together you know, a meal. And so now I look at it like that's the second level. And the first level is really teaching self-mastery, which I think is a huge component of optimism and something that even adults that I work with feel like they are just starting to work on. And imagine being able to have worked at that at three, four, five years old. And what's very interesting about what you describe is that you described optimism as a blend of curiosity and resilience, something that children have, whether we want to give them credit for it or not. And you're not even in the classes, but you're seeing your son come out of it. Are you seeing those traits enhanced by what he is experiencing at Little Kitchen Academy? Absolutely. And I feel, you know, there's a level of confidence, you know, and that's what we do in sessions. What I do with people is you know, it's a little bit different, but coming up with a goal that is, you know, really sort of measurable. So same thing, having a small goal that they can really see in the kitchen, which is, you know, being able from start to finish to create a meal of some sort. And if you can do that from start to finish, you feel this sense of, I have mastered something. I can do this. I can do it on my own and I can do it from start to finish. And I think that any skills you can learn with that and being able to hone in on this idea of self-mastery, that's what I like to teach my clients, not give them things that is going to make their life better, but actually help them come up with A, the idea that will make their life better and something that they can start to finish, really take ownership over and pat themselves on the back to celebrate this win so that they can do it without you. And I think that's the piece that is really important. Also, you know, just coming into our own kitchen and, you know, the curiosity piece, like he will just say, I know what this tastes like, or I know, you know, what this herb is. And I've done this before. And I'm like, no, you can't cut this. And he's like, no, I've done it before. They let me do that at Little Kitchen Academy, at cooking camp. He calls it cooking camp. And so, you know, I, I have more confidence in him as well. And I'm blown away by, you know, the amount of information that he knows and different types of meals and herbs and spices that he's exposed to. But mainly it's that idea of autonomy and independence and self-mastery that I 
think, you know, other Montessori maybe programs, they do that a lot in school. We don't do a Montessori school. And so, you know, whereas they are learning that in other ways at, at our preschool, but I think that it's such a distinct piece from LKA that I see my son have that I just love. It works really well for him. Well, you mentioned your kitchen. You're sitting in it right now. So it's a perfect segue for me to ask the question that every single person gets asked on this podcast. I'll ask it right now. Deepika, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? Well, I guess I could answer that literally or figuratively, but I think I would say cooking with freedom because I thought about that You know, the other day. We had this hurricane, our first ever hurricane scare at least in my lifetime in LA, which was interesting. It became more of a tropical storm, thank goodness. But we hunkered down kind of, and we decided to make cookies. Well, I decided to make cookies. And I will say that I have made cookies multiple times, hundreds of times, and they do taste good. But this particular time I made cookies and they were the most awful cookies I have ever seen or experienced. My son came up and said, wow, those look like the spots on a soccer ball. They're hexagons. That was not by design. I don't know what happened. They were absolutely disgusting. I had to throw them out. But you know, then the day after I made a really delicious lamb couscous. So I just think the freedom to create and the freedom to make mistakes. That's a big part that I think happens in my kitchen. I think I'm prone to perfectionism and I think my older son is too. And so I'm very sort of hyper aware to try to create activities and an environment where, you know, we're not doing things and trying to be perfect. And so for me, I think just having freedom to create and not having just this sort of pressure to make things in my kitchen that are, you know, the Pinterest version of something and it has to be the best tasting. Sometimes we laugh. It's disgusting. It's awful. I've royally messed up. And other times I surprise myself by sort of just going by the gut and making something that at least I'll say tastes delicious. And so I think freedom. That's a great answer. And it leads me into this because with your profile and the position that you're in and the opportunities that present themselves, look, you've collaborated with major brands like Goop. You've partnered with a lot of people during the course of your career. So you probably have to be very selective about who you choose to endorse or partner with. What was it about Little Kitchen Academy that said to you, yeah, I can put my stamp on this? I think it's just my own personal experience. And also, you know, I had breakfast recently with one of the founders and it was so interesting because I feel like there was all this stuff underneath that I was discovering, but I wasn't sure if I was correct. I was just like, I think this is so much more you know, about the skills. And I feel like even the sort of chefs that I was meeting as I would drop off and pick up, I was like, they just seem so much more equipped in childcare and more so than like maybe, you know, that they're just hiring these like really great chefs. It just all felt much more intentional. And I wasn't even sure if I was correct, but it felt that way. And then when I sort of mentioned that and there was so much intention behind it and so much even more than I was imagining, and it was about that, I think, you know, it just lend itself really hand in hand to having like, there's so much synergy between what I do and what the kitchen does. And especially with my focus this particular year coming up on children and youth and optimism skills and proactive mental health care skills at a younger age. It just was a no-brainer that there was a collaboration there. And I'm very excited that there was just so much more 
even if it was just making a recipe, that would be great and we'd still do it. But it was really nice sort of cherry on top and has become more of the core of why I'm such a believer of the Little Kitchen Academy when I was able to really see that it is just so much more about life skills and teaching these kids how to regulate their emotions and how to celebrate their wins and you know create a sense again of self-mastery. You just mentioned it and you referenced earlier turning your focus since becoming a mother more into optimism in youth and in children. You're going to launch optimism cards for kids. Can you describe what they are and what that's going to look like? Yeah. So I have Things Are Looking Up, which is behind me. It's the original deck of cards. It's 52 cards that each have a science-based or holistic prompt or suggestion that actually works to increase your optimism. And so for me, I'm very passionate about helping people, again, create their own toolbox and giving them the tips and tricks and tools that they can use in the moment with very little time, because let's face it, we are all busy people. And I think that, you know, for a while, self-care and this idea of proactive, even mental health care became this very only for the privileged. And I mean that with possibly socioeconomic status, but I also mean that with like people that were privileged with a lot of time on their hands. And the reality is most of us don't have that much time. And it really deterred many of us from doing anything good for ourselves because we didn't have more than one or two minutes. And so I'm a big believer of this idea of micro moments and using the moments we have throughout our day to really count. And so all of these prompts and suggestions are actionable items. They're not affirmations. They tell you what to do and they're a brain activity or a physical activity that you can do most of them within you know less than two minutes and they help shift your mood. And if you do them enough, you know they help build a new habit and actually you know, help rewire our brains in a certain way that make it easier to increase and sustain optimism. And so, you know, the kids deck version was actually thought of before this one. It's just this one came out earlier and I've been really honing in on working on it. And I'm actually so glad this is the right time because I have two kids now and we really tweaked it back and forth with, you know, the experience of my two children and other children. And the really fun and interesting piece of that is that my kids got to illustrate the deck, which is really, really fun for me. And also, you know, randomly, there are a few cards in there that, you know, I'm excited to share with you guys when it comes out that, you know, are food and kitchen related. I'm intrigued. That sounds fantastic. And that's so cool that you could have your children involved with the project. As somebody who has his daughter voice the intro for this particular podcast, I know how satisfying that is and and what an incredible thing to share that is for you as, as well as it is for your children, especially someday when they look back. You mentioned that the adult cards are out now. They've been out for some time. When will the optimism cards for kids come out? So we're looking at a early October launch and kind of right in time for being back in school. And we're very excited about it. Can't wait to have a look at them. You mentioned that this is just another tool that you've developed to help people and give them actionable items. One of the things that you had done in the past was your own podcast. This is old hat for you. You did the podcast looking up. It was very well done. Your guest list was extremely broad. And in listening to some of the episodes, I got the sense that you truly enjoyed those conversations. What did you learn from hosting that podcast? Well, I learned it was a lot of work, (laughs) as you probably know. I think what was so interesting about it for me is 
I was always hesitant to start a podcast. It was something for very many years that was sort of brought to me. And I was never a podcast listener, except for I was an avid listener of Serial when it first came out. But I obviously wasn't going to do a true crime podcast, although I wish I could. And, you know, the idea of creating something audible and like just all the moving parts of it seemed really daunting to me. And so I was never, it just was something I was hesitant about. And then, you know, I worked with a production company. I was signed to them and I sort of said, okay, great. This sounds like I'm just going to walk into a studio. I can just do the thing I'm good at. You guys can do the thing you're good at. And so I signed up for it and I was excited to start and then COVID hit. And so all of a sudden I you know, learned I would have to be doing these podcast episodes and recording them by myself in my bedroom, let alone. And all the things I had feared the most I was having to do. And to be honest, I think it was such an amazing learning opportunity for me and a piece of growth because it's something I never really thought I could do. And I literally did all six seasons from my bedroom. And so I was able to do it. And I think the silver lining in it of being able to do it all virtually or having to do it all virtually because we were all at home is that I got to talk to anybody I was interested to talk to no matter where they were. And it was a great purveyor of you know, me just being really nerded out and interested in someone or their expertise. And I got to sit down for an hour or less and ask them all the things I wanted to ask them. And, you know, other people were interested in that too. But I think it just really hit on the core of I'm interested in humans. It's why I do what I do. And I love to understand, you know, what people's greatest struggles are or were and what their sort of point of growth is and what they want and what's going well. And I'm just curious about humans. I think what I also learned was that, again, it is a lot of work to do a weekly show. Um, You know, we did six seasons and decided to go on a little hiatus because I like to do things, you know, from a point of inspiration. And I was deeply inspired by it. And then I reached a point where I started to become inspired by maybe a different sort of setup for the podcast. And so that's still something that is in the works. And, you know, I'm excited about revisiting and sort of reigniting the podcast, but sort of forming it in a little bit different way. We will look for it and you'll have to let us know when it comes out. But this is the beautiful thing about podcasts is that your 58 episode library is still out there and our listeners can check out Looking Up and there are some excellent episodes. I haven't been able to get through all 58, but I have listened to a number of them. It brings up this as well. You've been the host of a podcast. You're a guest on this podcast. You've done that many times. You've been the expert. Obviously, you have your private practice as well. What role are you most comfortable in? Mm. You know, I think the most important role, obviously, and this is so cliche, but it is being a mom. But I will say the role I'm most comfortable in, which is interesting and something I wouldn't have really known had I not sort of been thrown into it. I really love interactively speaking to a large live audience, you know, and I think that I found over COVID, it was so interesting, but I even love doing it virtually. And for me, even when I'm speaking to a large audience, it's always really important to me to intentionally or not make it feel intimate. And so I just, I love learning from people's questions. I love learning from sort of when I can see people resonating with something or feeling relief by like their shoulders, you know, releasing or, you know, have this look on their face of an aha moment you know, or challenging me with a great question. And so I think I just, I love 
the macro level of this in a way I never thought I would. You know, sometimes it takes me away from the micro, the one-on-one work. I'm just so grateful that I'm able to do both. And I feel very comfortable basically just interacting with other humans and even being a guest on a podcast. I think it's so cool. And I never would have imagined that you know, being a behavioral scientist and doing a doctorate in clinical health psychology, I would be able to partner with brands and companies so different, like with Colgate or, you know, Fisher-Price or Amex, like just completely, or skincare brand Rock, who I'm in partnership with now, or Little Kitchen Academy, which I think is great because at the core of it, you know, what we're really talking about is being human. I agree with you completely, and I'm really interested to see where this collaboration between you and Little Kitchen Academy goes in the future. I'm grateful that you welcomed me into your kitchen. As you mentioned, it's an intimate place to be, so thank you very much for that, and thank you for sharing and being vulnerable here with us today. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen?